All right, amen. Soon and very soon. I hope you're excited about that day. I'm looking forward to the day when I will see my Savior face to face. I mean, I love my Savior whom I have never seen, and yet I'm longing for the face to face where I'll be walking, you know, really in his sight. And uh, this, this time of walking by faith will be over to be in his presence forever, um, surrounding his throne, serving, worshiping, resting, working, all of those things. What a tremendous eternal life that we have. What an abundant, full life. Hmm. Amen. Well, if you take your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 1 as we continue in our study of this great letter of the Bible. James chapter 1. Remember, just briefly, I don't want to continually um, repeat everything that I say, but I think it's so good to memorize and to learn this text as we walk through it, verse by verse. James, the half-brother of Jesus, um, seeing the Lord in, in risen form, 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, he became a pillar in the early church, a leader in Jerusalem, most likely the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church had exploded from 3,000 to 5,000 to 10,000 to 20,000. You're talking many people. And by Acts 8, verse 1, when the stoning of Stephen is done, the persecution of the church has spread many of the Jerusalem members all over. We know some went down to Antioch, some went all over. James, who, again, the half-brother of Jesus, um, with a great pastor's heart, is wanting to encourage his church that has been scattered abroad. And these are Jewish believers. It is James who calls himself a doulos, a slave of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God. Um, He says he's writing to the 12 tribes, the Jewish believers, 12 tribes, to those who've been scattered abroad. So he has such a a pastoral heart. He He wants his flock to live for the Lord with authentic faith. And if you have real, genuine faith in the Lord, it will produce godly fruit. And James is saying, do not forget, authentic faith will produce good fruit. And that's what we need to do. So James uses, out of 108 verses, 54 commands. We're going to get four or five just right tonight. Boom, boom, boom. 54 commands in 108 verses. He uses all these illustrations of scripture, of, of, of nature, Like we saw this morning, a fishing illustration. He uses parenting illustrations, solar systems, mirrors, a horse's bridle. I mean, all sorts of things that we can grab hold on and take hold. Remember how he starts his book. He says, listen, I know you're undergoing some severe circumstances. Outward trials have leapt into your life. That word, count up my joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials. It's the idea of a robber coming upon you on the road. It's the idea of a ship hitting a reef, like in Acts 27. These trials come up out of nowhere. Your response, count it pure, unmixed, unalloyed joy. Why? Because you are knowing that the testing of your faith, God is interested in the purification of your faith. The testing of your faith produces endurance, staying power, the ability to remain under the trial with a good attitude and positive response to God over a long period of time, and that is producing maturity, Christ-likeness, which also brings about wholeness where all parts of your spiritual life are working. They're in good working order. And that results in a crown of life. Wow, what a blessing. Not only do we become more like Christ on earth, but we get rewarded for all of that in heaven. It's a double bonus. But then, as we saw this morning, James, uh, as soon as he addresses all these outer circumstances, he then turns to the heart. And he says, listen, believers, You don't only have outward circumstances coming upon you. Tomorrow you don't know what might hit, but inside you have an even greater battle. It is enticements within your heart. These do not count all joy. 
He says, renounce and abandon them. Resist and flee these enticements of the heart. Why? Because in our fallen nature, we have desires. And these desires, when they meet up and match with the luring and enticement of the world, our desire will chase after that like we're being dragged with an inward power. We will meet up with the bait. It will take us captive. It brings forth sin. When the two conceive, they bring forth sin. And sin, when it's brought to maturity, results in death. Be sure your sin will find you out. Just a little sin, a minor transgression, a harmless habit, something that you think is not a big deal, can infect your whole family and the whole church and the whole community. You all agree? I mean, we don't play with sin. What do we do? We resist, we flee. Like Joseph in Genesis 39. He didn't play games. He wasn't saying, well, Mrs. Potiphar... Um, I'll meet you halfway and we'll just spend a little bit of time together. And No way. He was out. Day after day enticement, he fled. Not like Achan, who saw, he coveted, and he took, and he hid. It cost him his, all of his animals, children, wife, his own life. We don't play with sin. What a warning, these enticements within. James says, it will bring forth nothing but death. Let's look at verse 18. I mentioned this. God, on the other hand, James says, see, James doesn't leave us just hopeless with these temptations within. He says, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He will give everything that is good, and, and, it, and it's perfect. It'll meet, the gift he gives will meet the very occasion. If you think that God has not satisfied you and you need to step outside of his boundaries, do not be alarmed. Stay where you're at. Be content with what you have within the boundaries of God, and he will provide perfect gifts that meet every occasion of your life. You do not need to have to transgress his boundary to get what you do not need for satisfaction. He will fully satisfy your heart if you let him. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You know what the greatest gift he's given us? Verse 18, the greatest gift is regeneration, a new nature. He gives us a new nature and the power of the Holy Spirit to live victoriously. That is the greatest gift. As I look around, I see many here that are born again, but if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, the Bible says you have no power and you have no nature within you disposed for the pleasing of God. You cannot please him. You must be born again. Everybody. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl must be born again to have victory over the enticing temptations of the heart. Verse 18 says, Of his own will, he brought us forth. We are born again, born from above, by the word of truth. How, did, how, how, did you, how were you born again? Somebody shared with you the word of truth. You might have read it in a gospel tract. Somebody might have shared it. For me, it was my sister, it was Pastor Lapine, it was, um, it was Dick Peterson. I mean, there's many people that shared the gospel. I was just so stubborn and hard-hearted. To, it took many, many people, many, many times for me to get saved. But I pray that as we give out the word of truth, this week, men and women will be regenerated by the very will of God as they are born from above. He says, um, this is by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. We're going, to spend a lot of, we're going to spend a little bit of time on first fruits, and then we're going to talk more about 19 through 21. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you now, we think about this text and just the importance of receiving the word of God. Help us, Father, to be attentive, to be so swift to hear. 
that your word would change our lives. Father, maybe somebody tonight needs to be born from above. They've never entered into a relationship with you by faith. Maybe tonight, Father, there's a believer who has just not been swift to hear. Maybe they have not been slow to speak. Maybe they have been angry at your word. I pray these issues would be resolved as Jesus is glorified and as we humble ourselves before you. To the praise and the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, in verse 18, the end of it, the whole purpose of the Lord Jesus coming, dying for our sins and rising from the dead so that we might have a new birth, that we might be born from above, according to the will of God, is that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Very interesting. James being such an Old Testament person, of course, they didn't have the New Testament. When he's writing in the mid-40s, he is maybe late 30s, early 40s, as a young man, he's depending so much on the Old Testament. The first fruits, there's three things about the first fruits that are true of born-again believers. First of all, the first fruits that were offered to God were specially his. Now, do, do you all agree that God owns everything? Even in the Old Testament, God owns everything, the cattle on a thousand hills. But when you offered him the first fruits of your garden, the first fruits of, of your olive trees, the first fruits of whatever, in a special way, the first fruits belonged only to God. They were like a special possession. The other 90% of your crops could be used for ordinary use. But your first fruits... The first bit of grain, that was God's in a special way. You just didn't use that for ordinary purposes. Isn't that neat that James says, as born-again believers, in this whole world out of 7 billion people, we are a kind of first fruits. God owns everything and everybody, but in a special way, he owns us. We're his special possession. I think that's very rich. But I think, secondly, the first fruits were always the best. When you offered to God your first fruits, it was always of the highest quality, the highest of character. And I think as true believers, we're a kind of first fruits in that sense too, where we are just desiring to be the most excellent used of God. We want, listen, we want our mind to be the sharpest when we're reading the word of God. When we're ministering the gospel, when we're serving others, when you're making a meal for others, you're not just like slapping some things together and hoping it comes out okay. I mean... That's not what you want to do is you want to do the very best because you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first fruits were like the very excellent, the best of everything. And that's what we want as believers. We want to be the very best and the most excellent in all of our ministries. But there was a third aspect of the first fruits that we have to remember. And it was that God had a promise of more to come. When you grabbed the first fruits of the grain harvest, all of it wasn't ready to be reaped yet. You are taking the first fruits and saying, Lord, here is the beginning of the harvest. You are promising to finish your work. You're going to finish the rest of the harvest. You're going to bring in all that you desire. It was kind of God saying, here is the first fruits. Here comes the promise. Jesus is the first fruits of those who rose from the dead, guaranteeing a future harvest of resurrection. So by you being here tonight, by being active in a local church, as a kind of first fruits, you are saying, God, let your plan go on and finish. Bring the whole church to fullness. Get the church out of here. Do your seven years of tribulation. Bring the Lord Jesus as king for a thousand years. Bring an end and consummation of all things. It's, it's, a, prom- it's a guarantee. Just by you being here, God's plan is, act- is active, and he's going to f- fulfill all of his promises to us, to Israel, to the world. 
See, isn't that great? I think those are all the things that James is thinking about his, his flock. And he's saying, you know, the greatest gift God has ever given us is our regeneration. Don't take it for granted. Don't take, don't take it for granted that you're just a Christian. People are dying in our community without Christ. They are not the first fruits. They will perish for all eternity. And we who are his first fruits sometimes don't realize how blessed we really are, what privileges we really have. Well, he moves from this idea of the first fruits of salvation that we were bought, uh, we were bought, we were born again through the word of truth. He now begins a kind of a shift. I, I love James' message because almost everything hinges on something else. Starting in verse 18, now all the way down to verse 27, there's a common theme the word of God, the word, the word of truth, the perfect law of liberty, the word, the word is a mirror. On and on, the word of God. So I think now we're going to turn our attention away from the first fruits and the great gift of regeneration to the second great gift. Second great gift, God has given us his word. And listen, everyone, just like the word of God has saved you from your penalty of sin and from the power of sin, so we need the word of God daily to, to have victory over the enticing, the enticing pleasures of sin and the difficult trials that come upon us. We need the word of God. So let me take you into this text, verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. All right, we are looking now at the second great gift, the word of God. James is instructing his people, here, listen, you need to receive the word of God a certain way. That, the power in the word of God is so great, we have to have the right reception for it. When you sit week after week in the local church and you hear the preaching of God's word, you need to receive it properly. And so James is going to teach us how to do that. Before we do that, let's go over to the Old Testament book of Psalms. I think James is thinking much of this psalm as he's writing the word of God. Writing about the word of God. Psalm 119, please. Psalm 119. We'll look at just one set of eight verses. I would encourage you to take time to read Psalm 118 over the next few weeks as we study this text in James 1, going all the way into chapter 2, about the Word of God. Psalm 119 is written in 22 different stanzas. Each stanza is eight verses, and each group of eight begins with a Hebrew letter. So the first eight all begin with Aleph, the next eight all begin with Bet, and then Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav. It goes on, every single letter of the alphabet in the Hebrew language. Why would God do that? Is it just because he's so clever? No, I think it's the fact that he wanted the Jewish people to memorize this. You memorize the first eight verses, they all begin with Aleph. That's not too hard. Memorize the next eight, they all begin with Bet. Now, we don't have that privilege in English. They all start with something different. But let's look at the second group, verse 9. The writer of this psalm says, first of all, a person can cleanse their way You can cleanse your way, you can cleanse your conduct by obeying the word of God. Remember this morning we talked about the enticements, the the desires in our heart that leap out at various temptations and pleasures that take us captive and bring about death? 
You want victory over that? You cleanse your path, you cleanse your conduct by obeying God's word. He writes this in verse 9, Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. You want godly conduct? You want clean conduct? You want a moral, pure mind and life? It only goes back to taking heed, obeying the word of God. You do not obey the word of God, you will not have a clean way. You will not have good, pure minds and lives to glorify God with. How do you do it? By taking heed according to God's word. The next group of verses, beginning in verse 10 all the way down to verse 14, the writer, he says, I internalized your word and I delighted in your word. All right, so I want everybody here this week to think about your obedience to God's word and then I want you to deliberately internalize it. Deliberately take heed, pay attention, internalize it, and delight in it. Here's how the psalmist says it, verse 10. With my whole heart I have sought you. How much of a heart? My whole heart I have sought you. It's like he pursued God through his word, chasing down every word, every phrase of the scriptures. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Do you see the psalmist's responsibility? He is seeking after God in his truth. And what is God's responsibility? Oh, Lord, don't let me wander from your commandments. Keep me on the, on the straight path. So we have a part to play. God has a part to play. He internalizes it by saying in verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, that's internalizing it, hiding it, memorizing it, living it out, realizing tomorrow you're going to be set with some temptations in your heart that will lead you to some very temporal pleasures that will bring about ruin and death and destruction in your life. I don't want you to play games with that. You have to just guard your heart and hide God's word in your heart. He goes on and he says, verse 12, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in what? All riches. It's like the psalmist is saying, your word brings me so much delight when I internalize it and I follow it. I don't succumb to the pressures of the world. And it's as if I have more delight in God's word than in all the money of the world, all the riches, anything that could be bought at a price. It means nothing compared to the delights I have in God's word. I think this is what James is telling us. James is going to be saying the same thing as what, um, as what this psalmist says. Now, the last two verses, the psalmist says he's going to make a practice to think about God's word continually. He's going to commit himself to this. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. This word contemplate in the Hebrew, to show high regard for to contemplate, to show a high esteem and value for God's word. He's making a commitment. I'm going to value your word more than anything else this week, more than any TV show, no, any more than movie, any book that's been written, any song that's been sung. Your word is going to be valued much higher than that. I'm going to contemplate you in all your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Now, that's a good attitude. That is how we cleanse our way. Now let's go back to James. And now you'll see very quickly what James' intention is. How do we receive God's word? James 1.19. We have four commands here in 19 through 21. The first command, So then, my beloved brethren, 
And I think because there's going to be some harshness to this, he tempers it with, my beloved brethren. It's always nice to say, hey, you guys are loved. Even when you're disobedient, you're still loved. But let's do this. Let's work this together. I think that's his attitude. So then, or could be literally, remember this, my beloved brethren. First command, let every man be swift to hear. All right. Be swift to hear. Now, many people take this out of context, meaning if I have a conversation with you, with you this week, I need to be very careful to listen to what you're saying, nod in an encouragement, and repeat certain phrases that I know I'm listening. That's a good moral application, maybe in a secondary sense. That's not what James is saying in context, though. He's saying, let every man, every man, every woman in this church be swift to hear. The context, be swift to hear the word of God. The early church did not have Bibles. The New Testament wasn't even written. The Old Testament, with all the scrolls, you'd be carrying quite a backpack to church. Plus, they would be very, very pricey. You did not have a Bible. Now imagine coming tonight to this assembly, and you do not have a copy of the Scriptures, and I instead just read the book of James. Now, you could be sitting back and not paying attention, and you might catch every other word. You might catch one or two words in a whole paragraph. James is saying, be swift to hear. You hear the word of God being read in a public service like this. You had to sit in the chair and you had to listen attentively. This word swift, takis in the Greek, it is the word used for a runner who is with maximum effort and focus running to win first place. That's the word swift. He's saying every man and woman in the church should be like there with maximum effort and full attention and focus getting every single word of God, making every occasion to hear the word of God. All right, be swift to hear. There were probably people that, as the word was being spoken, were busy doodling. Don't put your pencil down now. No, Um, doodling, crossword puzzles, um, uh, recipes, um, to-do lists. I mean, there's lots of things you could be doing right now. But I think the true believer who is really intent on getting victory in the trials and the temptations of life, they're going to be so swift, eager, focused, maximum effort to hear and make occasion to learn every word that they can of God. To hear and to listen. Be swift to hear the word of God. It's amazing. There are so many opportunities to hear the word of God, isn't there? Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Bible studies. There's occasions. There's men's retreats, ladies' retreats. There's special things all the time that we have occasion to learn and to sit under the teaching of God's word. And I think to show where a person's heart is, you are just eager to hear and to learn everything that you possibly can. I I think it's exciting. It really is. And in the day that James is speaking, every word of Scripture was just read verbally, and you had to be quick to listen, swift, eager. But I think it has the idea of effort. It takes effort to remember. You should go home tonight and just kind of think, count it all, join my brethren, when you fall into various trials, um, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance, when it has its perfect work, produces maturity and wholesomeness. And then he moves on and on. And if any of you lack anything, you lack what? Wisdom. And if you lack wisdom, what are you supposed to do? Ask of God. Does God give generously or how does God give? He gives liberally, generously, single-minded, with single-minded intent, like you're the only one in the world that needs wisdom. He's going to give it to you. And then beware of these inner temptations. There's desires that, what happens to the desires in your heart? They get, what do they get matched up with? They're lured and enticed 
by various temptations, and you are drawn into them. And if, you, if the two meet, what do they conceive? Sin, and sin brings forth death. See, you already are getting it. Being swift and eager to hear the word of God and to apply it to your life. It requires a very attentive spirit. There's two ways to listen to things. Listen eagerly and attentively, writing and taking notes and pondering it, or simply listening. All right, just listening. And then you forget it as soon as you go away. James is saying, be swift to hear. Secondly, what's the second command? Be slow to speak. If you're going to be swift and eager, maximum effort to hear the word of God at every occasion, you also need to be slow to speak. What does this mean? I think two things. If you hear something you don't like, it is easy to say what? I don't agree. I don't want to hear that. I'm going to speak up about it. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to reject the counsel of God, and I'm going to be quick to speak about it. Now, in the early church, you see this in James 3. James, in chapter 3, he says, let not, many of, let not many of you be teachers. What most likely happened in the early church was not a setting like this where one man spoke one direction to, uh, to a congregation, but most likely they met in, in synagogue houses, maybe, or, or even in the homes, and it was probably set up like a synagogue where the bema seat, where they would read the scripture, was in the center, and then all the way around the perimeter was the seating. And the scriptures would be read, and a man would stand up. Remember how the Apostle Paul did this sometimes in the book of Acts? He would stand up during a service, and they would say, give us an exhortation, Acts 13. And Paul would get up, and he would exposit the scriptures. And then somebody else would get up, and they would exposit the scriptures. Then some, and there would be many speakers, And if you wanted to get your point across, you'd be quick to speak. But woe to those who speak, because every word must be in approval of God. We want God's approval. So it is not, the word of God is not something to be taken carelessly. And just anybody gets up to speak anything they want. What we say must be according to the counsel of God. The the greatest, the hardest thing for me in ministry, I mean, everything in ministry is hard. I'm a very private and a very shy introvert, and I'm not a, I don't like public speaking at all. It was the class I failed. It was the class I did poorly in all the time. Now, the, you know what my greatest fear besides all those things? When I get done, God, when the Holy Spirit breathed out these words by holy men, was this the intent? Is this what you meant by the text? Is this how you wanted us to apply it? That is what I will be held in account for. And it is... We need to be slow to speak. I think it's also the idea of promoting our own ideas. You may not like something that that the scriptures say. You might want to promote your own vision, your own philosophy. And that has happened in the past, and it's difficult. People are very quick to say, well, here's what I think about that, Um, and they disagree with fundamental truths of scripture. So we need to be careful. Be swift to hear. Be slow to speak. The next one, be slow to wrath. Be slow to wrath. Why? Why? Because when you hear the word of God correcting us, what's our first reaction when we're corrected? We get what? Defensive. Yes. What? You're saying I'm not perfect? Come on. You don't know me, you don't know me like I know me. When, we, when the word of God corrects, it is so easy to become quick to anger. Um, boy, you can take any sensitive area and open the word of God and say, I want, I want you to look at the counsel of God's word, and, and here's what I observe in your own life, and what immediately happens. 
That's not me. I'm way better than that. This isn't right. Oh, whatever. I mean, it's just anger. And as James is going to correct them about many areas, he's going to correct them about treating widows and orphans correctly. He's going to talk about the tongue. He's going to talk about partiality, treating certain people better than others in the church body. He's going to be dealing with issues of wealth. He's going to be dealing with many issues. I think I counted like 28 different issues he's going to bring up. And the church will need to be corrected, but they will need to be slow to anger. They will need to be able to take correction. I think a good sign of maturity you can take correction. You can say, you know what? I'm not perfect. I need change. I need to be corrected. I need somebody to care about me enough to say, hey, you're getting off track in this area. You need to come back in line. Here's God's word. Yes, I see God's word is right, and I am not. I need to conform to God's word. But on the other hand, most of us get angry. And you know what the anger of man does not do? It does not produce righteousness of God. If you are angry, rejecting, or rebelling at God's word, it will not produce righteousness, right standards of living. It will not. So how, are we to re- how do we receive God's word? We need to be very swift to hear. Take every opportunity with maximum effort and listening to learn the word of God. I mean, get to every Bible study you can. Come to Sunday school. I mean, what a time of, of talking and interaction, learning different topics from the scriptures. Come to church services. Go to conferences. There's many things you can do. Many, many things you can do. Again, be careful. Sit under the proper teaching. You don't want to sit under just anybody's teachings. You need to be very discerning and careful about that. Be swift to hear. Be slow to speak. Um, be very careful as we, as we teach and look at God's word. Um, it's easy to attack, and it's easy to, to be angry. We don't go there. We don't do those things, because it doesn't produce righteousness. The fourth thing. Look at the last verse, 20, 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and here's the fourth command. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, if we had time and we don't, look at this text in light of horticulture. Did I say that right? Horticulture. The word just sounds funny. That's um, green things, plants, life, biology. Okay, yes, horticulture. I think you look at this, you can really see some great things with Matthew 13 and the soils of the heart, preparation of the heart, reception of God's word. Um, If you have rocky soil, don't expect any fruit. The root will dry up. If you're choked with cares of the world, don't expect any fruit. But if you have good soil, expect 30, 60, 100 fold. Remember that? All right, so I think that's the same type of thing that James is talking to. We don't have time to get into it. Study it out on your own. He does say this, though. Before you receive God's word with meekness, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. This word, lay aside, apothemai, it's a great word. It means to take off and to push away. To take off and to push away any filthiness and overflow of wickedness in your life. You've got to put off before you can take in. This word, lay aside, is used in the Greek secular language for taking off your dirty clothes at the end of the day. Now, I never, like if I'm working around the house and I'm all sweaty and gross, um, yes, if I am, I I do. I take my clothes off and I put them away, far away. Usually not even in the clothes hamper, but uh, down in the basement in a very, you know, spot where nobody can see or smell them. That's how bad they are. Um, and, then, and then when I get cleaned up, I don't run back down there and put the old clothes on, do I? No, that would be so foolish. That would be so foolish. 
So we, put, we lay aside and we put away filthiness and just don't go back there. So that's the idea of lay aside. Now this word filthiness, interesting word. Filthiness is used a few times in the scriptures. The, the root word, okay, it's used in James 2 too. If you have a rich man coming in and you say, hey, sit right here. And the filthy man, James 2 too, um, you can sit back there because the word filthy, vile, it means a disgusting odor. All right? The root word means earwax. <laughs> Nothing grosser than earwax. Really. Uh, you know? Yeah. Earwax. Now, Interesting that, isn't it used in the context? If we are full of filthiness, full of earwax, we can't really hear and receive the word of God. So I think there's maybe some play in that, I don't know. But the word after this earwax thing began to mean anything vile, disgusting, and gross. Um, Lay it aside. Get it out of your life. Deal with it. Confess it. Forsake it. Run. Flee. Get accountability. Get help. You cannot do it alone. You need help. Seriously, your spiritual life is worth it to deal with sin. Pull it out like a bad tooth. Just rip rip it out of your body. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow abundant evil. Just evil, wickedness. When, uh, next Sunday, we have the church baptism. Um, how many of you want um, our potato salad when we throw a little bit of uh, rocks in it and sand and, and all sorts of things? Nobody's going to want it because even a little bit of sand in our potato salad would be very gross. I know Pastor Lab, Wilfred Lab, when he would invite me up to the shack, and I, if I, I, often I couldn't make it, but he would say, Pastor Brian, next time you come up, I'm going to put rocks in your gravy. Or sand in your gravy. He would, and I, I would always think about that. I would not enjoy even a little bit of sand in my gravy. I don't, he never did that, but he would always tease me. What a, what a neat, godly man. Um, no, I'm serious. I love him. But he used to say that to me all the time. Um, just a good, he, he, good, good man, just teasing me. But I think this is good to think about. How much filth and how much overflow of wickedness would you allow in your life? and still be pleasing and honoring to the, to the Lord. Would you guys allow certain amount, cert, certain amount of violence and sexual content and evil? Just as long as it's only limited to 2 or 3% of your life, 4% maybe on a bad day. I mean, would that even be appropriate? James says, you want to receive God's word with meekness? Get rid of all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Lay it aside, put it away, don't go back to it. Okay. Then you receive, and that's the whole key. The key word is receive. Receive with meekness. Now, the word meekness, quickly, we don't have much time. The word meekness, it's very hard to understand. Is it like humility? Is it strength under control? There's different ways of looking at it. I, I think we could look at it with humility. Receive the word with humility. But I think with humility comes teachability. Receive with teachability the word of God. Be teachable. The greatest, maybe the greatest characteristic you could have as a believer is just be teachable. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be rebellious. Don't be rejecting God's word, but just be teachable. Learn, 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 learn. Grow, apply it to your life. Hide it in your heart. Delight in it as you internalize it. James says, receive with meekness the implanted word. It has a purpose. It's able to save your souls. Hey, wait a minute. James is writing to beloved brothers, to believers, 
How can their souls be saved if they're already saved? Salvation doesn't always mean justification. I think when James says this is able to save your souls, since you're, once you're justified, you, are glor- you will be glorified. It's a guarantee. Romans 8. I think this is the idea. Your soul will be delivered from the chastening hand of God. If you lay aside filthiness and all overflow of wickedness, your soul is delivered from God's chastening hand. He doesn't have to step in and correct you because you've, corrected, you've been corrected by the Holy Spirit and the Word. So your soul is delivered from the chastening of God. 1 Corinthians 11, many, Hebrews 12, many of those texts. It's not pleasant at the beginning, but at the end of the training time, it produces the fruit of righteousness. I think that's the idea. If you do this, if you are swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and you receive with teachability and humility the word of God, laying aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, God says, I don't have to step in and discipline you. You've been doing that yourself through the the spirit and the word. Um, You're growing in maturity. Keep it up. Otherwise, our soul is delivered to the chastening of God, and that's, that's painful. All right? Make sense? Isn't this good, a good book? So I want to ask you just a few questions. How are you receiving God's word? Are you eager about it? Obviously you are, because you're here tonight. I thank you for being here. But you're eager to learn God's word, to learn more about the context of James and what is he writing and, and, and how do we apply it. So are, you're, are you eager? Or no, are you rejecting or are you receiving? Are you angry? If somebody comes and corrects you this week, no, I'll get corrected a bunch this week because it'll, it'll be a test. But if somebody comes and, and corrects, we need to respond right. We just need to respond right. And um, be very swift to hear it. Be maximum effort, God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the word of truth, which regenerates us as well as delivers our soul from your chastening hand. We want to grow to be like Christ. We know that that only comes through the Word of God. The Word of God um, saves us. It brings about the new birth, but it also sanctifies us. We are sanctified by your truth. Your Word is truth. I thank you, Father, that we can internalize and delight in your Word, like Psalm 119 says, that we can cleanse our way according to your Word, but we have to receive it being swift to hear and very slow to speak and very slow to anger because that doesn't produce righteousness. But receiving with humility your word, laying aside all the sin that besets us, now that pleases you. And that will produce righteousness. And that is our goal, to grow in righteousness day by day. Thank you, Father, for this book of James and for what we're learning as a church family about trials and temptations, and now a, a, week, a couple weeks of study about your word. So thank you, Father, for our time together tonight to worship, to learn, and to hear from you. Continue to speak to us through your word this week as we seek you day by day. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.